Welcome to St. James. Glad you guys are here. It's good to see you. Uh, welcome to everybody who's watching on the live stream or the recording right now. I'm glad that you're here with us as well. Uh, make sure you read the announcements in the back of the bulletin. I just got a couple for you real quick here about today. First of all, there's no youth catechism class afterwards because we got two meetings going on. One is uh, for youth group, um, uh, families, parents, and kids who are planning on going to uh, the youth gathering next year. There is a meeting right after church today. Uh, with the youth group leadership about that. So you'll want to go to that. 
Uh, also, uh, just after that, there is an elders uh, meeting downstairs. So elders and deacons, they know who they are. But no youth uh, catechism class today. All right, I think that's all I have in terms of uh, announcements. Make sure you read the notices, though. Uh, stand with me, and let's pray, and then uh, we'll get going. Uh, Father, be with us this morning. We need you more than anything. We need uh, your love, and we need your hope. Uh, we need your identity. We need all the things that we've penned ourselves to this past week, all the uh, uh, things that we've shaped our uh, hopes and aspirations around. We need them to be exposed by you for the idols that they are, and we need you and you alone. And so this morning, Father, in the person of your son, Jesus, and by the power of his word and his sacraments, will you give yourself to us? Will you transform us? Will you be our God so that we can be your people? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God. You are the Lord, and you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that's in them, and you preserve them all. You have called us to yourself and given us a covenant. You have become our God and made us your people. And yet we have turned away from you. We have rebelled against you. You have delivered us many times according to your covenant mercies. You have warned us, and yet we have acted presumptuously. You have sent us prophets, and we have turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened our necks and would not obey your law. You are the Lord and you alone. You are our God, great and mighty. You keep covenant and steadfast love. We deplore our sins before you and before each other. They have only gotten us into trouble. They have only enslaved us. They have not given us the happiness they promised. Deliver us from our sin and the power and attraction of sin through the faithful suffering and death of our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose intercession we plead and in whose name we pray. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stay standing for the first time.
psalm for this morning is Psalm 31. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Old Testament reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 50. Uh, this is Isaiah's writing this, but the one who's talking here is uh, the servant of the Lord. So it's uh, uh, who we know is Jesus. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I've not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Epistle reading, James chapter 3. James is warning us against uh, uh, the bad use of the tongue and how we are, it's easy for us humans to be controlled uh, by our mouths and, and how much damage that can do. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. By 
Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 9. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. 
that if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. So this story starts with, it's been a while since we were, it's been, you know, two weeks since we were in Mark, but then it's been a while since we were in this part of Mark, uh, actually February, we read the first part of Mark chapter nine. And if you look at the the first verse there, when they came to the disciples, uh, the they is Jesus, Peter, James, and John, and where they're coming from is uh, the transfiguration which is what happens in the first part of Mark chapter nine, the transfiguration. So Jesus and Peter and James and John, they've been up on the mountaintop. Uh, Peter, James, and John have gotten to see like the veil pulled back and they get a glimpse of who Jesus really is, the glory of the eternal God in flesh. And they're, you know, mind blown. And then they come back down the mountain and that this is what happens the story here today. Uh, And so I don't know what you think about Christianity, I mean, all of us are discontented with our Christianity, um, unless you're lying. You all want more, you want better. And, you know, there's different elements to what it is to to be a Christian, to different parts of the Christian experience. And one of them is definitely like the transfiguration experience. This this seeing Jesus face to face and knowing who he is and experiencing the glory and sometimes having this rush of like, deeper, more insightful thoughts or more powerful emotions. And the temptation is that we want that. And of course, like you're totally not wrong for wanting that. It's a wonderful gift of God that Peter, James, and John got to experience that here. But sometimes we think, okay, that's good. But then coming down off the mountain, what happens next is less good, right? I mean, sick kid, scared father, disciples fighting with the people who disagree with them, uh, frustration, you know, the disciples are trying to do good works and it's not, nothing's getting done. And we're like, well, that's, you know, that's, that's like not good. But let me just assure you that one of the reasons why the story of the transfiguration and the story of this boy and the disciples inability to heal him is placed back to back is because both of those are a part of the Christian experience. And Jesus is Lord on top of the mountain and he's Lord when his church is screwing things up. He's Lord in both times. And so I'm not telling you that like, forget about the transfiguration. Let's get in each other's lives and knee deep in the junk and like the brokenness. There's a part of me that's like, I don't want that either. You know, I want to be on top of the mountain too. But honestly, are are we on top of the mountain right now? I don't know. Some of you are, some of you aren't maybe. Probably if I know you, the majority of you aren't. The majority of you are living in the struggleness, the, 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 the struggles of the brokenness that this father is and the boy is and the disciples are. And I know none of you have actually experienced 
I don't believe you have. Nobody's told me that they've experienced what Peter, James, and John experience. Although we'd like to, you know, even if, even if you're not looking for proof, just to see Jesus for who he is and to be in contact with him like that would be amazing. But let's not, let's not spend time here in the text this morning just because that's there. And I'm going to come back to that in just a second too. So this is a, a you know, famous story. Um, it's a story of, a, of the mission of Jesus not working, and it's the story of the mission of Jesus working. Both of those things happen here. And so let's, if we can, just for uh, a little bit, talk about what's the difference. Um, how does the mission of God, how is it not working in this text? And then how is it working in this text? So basically the, those two, you know, talk about the, the first one first and then the, the, the positive stuff second. So why this mission doesn't work? What's going on here? I guess there's like any number of things that we could say about specifics, but there's one overarching reason why the disciples aren't successful in this text. And Jesus says it a couple of times. It's that they don't have faith. They don't have faith in Jesus. When the mission is unsuccessful, it's because we don't believe in Jesus. All right. We'll talk about what that means in just a minute. But let me point out to you real quick here how Jesus says this. Verse 19, uh, you know, the disciples can't, uh, uh, help this kid. And so Jesus says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? So Jesus, like, like, he pinpoints the problem right off the bat, faithlessness. You guys don't believe in me. You don't have faith in me. Later on, when he actually d- does heal the kid, um, uh, you know, the, the, the father says, can you help me? Like, I, if you can do anything, please help us. And Jesus says, if you can, like, he's, he's, uh, he's calling out that guy's, if you can, like, that's crazy. Of course I can. The question is, do you believe? All things are possible for one who believes. If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. So at the heart of this text is that the mission of God is unsuccessful when God's people don't believe in Jesus. And the mission of God is successful when there is faith, that when there is faith. Okay. So but anyway, the, the negative stuff first, this is going to be kind of a downer. Uh, hopefully not too much, but here it is. Okay. How does this work out here? Well, Two different ways that, I mean, there's a, the problem is always faithlessness whenever there is a problem. In different texts, you'll get different views of it. And in different parts of our life, you'll get different views of it. But I'll just point out a couple of things here from the story that kind of illustrate the way that lack of faith looks in their life. Because so one way is this. Their unwillingness to connect the spiritual and the physical. The unwillingness to connect the spiritual and physical. Now, that's less of an issue for them and more of an issue for us who are reading this text in America or in the West in the 21st century. The unwillingness to connect the physical. You get a little bit of this with like the transfiguration. That's like this powerful, supernatural moment. Jesus glows bright white. The heavens open. There's Elijah and Moses. The voice of God from heaven. This is my beloved son, etc. And then you come down and you get the physical. Here's a kid who's having seizures. Here's a dad who's freaked out, and he's been freaked out since the kid was born. Here's two people, like Jesus' friends, fighting with the people who are not on Jesus' side. It's like, a, it's like this entire mess. What we need to do as Christians is we need to start to connect these two things. Now, the Enlightenment, I've told you this story before, super important. Um, I, this, I'm not really like reading the text right now, but it's really important that you get this because you all are children of the Enlightenment. You all live in America and about 300 years ago in the West, the Enlightenment happens. And one of the things it teaches us is this, is that because now we have science and now we've learned to like develop our human reason, 
we need less and less reason for God. You ever heard of the, the, the God of the gaps theory? Uh, philosophers talk about the God of the gaps. That is, you know, God exists to explain the things that science doesn't explain or the things that your senses don't explain. We use God for that, you know? So like it used to be thunder, call that God. Magic, we would call that God. But as science starts to eliminate more and more of those things that we didn't understand, there's become less and less of a need for God to explain any sort of thing. And so big enlightenment thought is that we just really don't need God anymore. We don't, there's no, like science explains all different kinds of things. Like it's real clear here, this kid has epilepsy. Like any doctors could see these symptoms and see that, yeah, this is what it is. He's got epilepsy. He has a uh, uh, a spirit, Mark says it's a spirit, but it seizes him, it throws him down, he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. It's classic, classic symptoms of epilepsy. But, but, you know, but back in Jesus's day, they would call that demon possession because they didn't understand science. They didn't know about epilepsy, right? Well, what, I, what I'm arguing for is like that that's a very, very narrow sort of view of the world. And it, it, it actually doesn't even make sense to say science can explain epilepsy, therefore we don't need things, we don't need like demons and God to explain things, doesn't even make logical sense. It's actually an illogical, no basis argument, not even an argument. It's, it's the revelation of a desire to not believe in God and a grasping at any sort of illogical basis for that. It would be like this. It would be like, if I say, you know, let's, you and I go to the Louvre and we see the Mona Lisa and we're like, look at there, Da Vinci, most, the most beautiful painting in the world. Look at that beautiful woman. And you got a little bit closer and you said this. You were like, wait, wait a second. I can see brush strokes on there. This is not actually a real woman. Somebody has painted this. I can see the brush strokes. Therefore, Da Vinci doesn't exist. None of that makes any sense. It's like nonsense talk. What, what, so here's what I want, I want to argue for, which I try, I try to argue for this a lot, because it's so important with Westerners that you guys get this. The spiritual and the physical always go together. There isn't like this science world where we don't need God. And then maybe you guys, you Christians, there's like this place where if it helps you out emotionally, you need this sort of crutch to believe that there's this divine figure up there. It's actually nonsense talk, right? It's possible that there is a God who exists and the things that he does can be accessed and understood by science. Just like there's a Da Vinci that exists, existed, I guess I should say. I think he's dead. And that the things that he did can be accessed by empirical observation. Those two things fit perfectly together in my mind. To say that science shows us this so we don't have a need for God is a nonsense statement. Right. So what I'm arguing for is this. Does the kid have epilepsy? Or does he have a demon possession? And the answer is... Well, yes, that's right. Whoever said yes. Why can't he have both? In fact, so Mark, doesn't, Mark says he's demon-possessed. If you go back to Matthew 17 and look at the parallel text, Matthew says he's demon-possessed too. Matthew actually uses the word for epilepsy, though. The word that was used for, to describe epilepsy in the ancient world. So, I mean, Mark doesn't use that word here, but Matthew does. There's really no sort of distinguishing between the two. The kid has epilepsy. It's clear from the symptoms. Also, there's a demon who's using that epilepsy to try to kill him who throws them into the fire and throws them into the water. You can be a perfectly normal, relatively mentally healthy adult and believe both of those things at the same time. And everybody does all the time about things like Da Vinci. And I'm arguing that you can too. It's perfectly normal to believe that there are personal agencies, some of them good, some of them evil, behind things that happen in the world.
That's what the Bible describes to us as God, and, and here in this case, a demon who's working against him. Why is this important to you? I'm not just like, this is not just some sort of apologetic moment. Although I hope that you like, whenever you hear somebody say some nonsense like, well, science has proved that we don't really need God anymore. You can say, paintings have proved that we don't need Da Vinci anymore. None of that makes any sense. That you can stick, I want that to be in your head, but that's not really not my main point. My main point is this, is that you and I as Westerners are prisoners of this kind of thinking. As much as I just argued against it, and as much as those of you who are Christians said, that's really good, I like that, that's, that helps me out here. I'm gonna remember that. We still fight against this. Here's what I mean. The mission fails when we, when we don't have faith in God when we pick out parts of our life that are material or rational or scientific. I'll give you some examples. So I read books about like church growth and stuff like that. And so here's a book about, and all of them I think, you know, more or less good. Some of them are kind of cheesy and some of them are really solid. But you know, you read one like that and invariably you're going to get something along the lines of like, whatever, five principles that you need to know. All right. So here's these principles. And I think they're good, you know, so I'm trying to put the principles into action. But that actually is to be like, you know, I'm not saying that's not helpful. I'm not saying that that's not helpful. That is helpful. But if Jesus doesn't grow his church, none of that matters. And so like what I have here is I have these scientific principles. And so I do them. Okay, St. James is going to do step one, two, three, four, five, and we're doing them. And then we're not growing. This is, I'm just like a metaphor, right? You know? Things aren't going well. The program that I started isn't taking off. What's wrong? And then if it's frustrating, like if it's mildly frustrating, I might be like, oh, I'm going to get another book that didn't work. Or let's change that. Let's, let's get rid of that program and start a new program. If it's super frustrating to me, I'll start to transfer that over to the, please, Jesus, will you help this? See what I've done? Like I've got science here. And I don't really need God too much. I'm not, this is a horrible thing for a pastor to say, right? I don't pray about it a lot. I don't like really commit this, bathe this thing, like, and like turn this over to God and trust in Jesus to do his mission. Like this guy says that these five principles will work. And so I try them out. And if they don't work, then I start to shift it over to the like, please, Jesus, help me. We do the same thing. Like for those of you with kids, you know, you, you read a blog post that tells about three ways to get your kids to sleep through the night or you know, three things to do with your teenagers so that they'll talk to you or something like that, whatever. So you do these three things. And if it works, you're like, yes, that, that, that really worked. And sometimes it doesn't work because like kids, you know, human beings don't do like what the formula tells them to do all the time. And then when it doesn't, you're like, oh, that didn't work. Or maybe there's another blog post, or let me, let me switch my philosophy to how to get the kid to sleep through the night. Or Again, you get desperate enough and you'll move from like this, the rational, the scientific, the informational realm. You'll shift over to the Jesus realm. Jesus, please help my teenagers or something like that. You know, that's what we do. And what I'm arguing here is that bring it all together. Like don't divide the rational from the spiritual. Don't divide the Da Vinci painting from Da Vinci himself. Like if you want to succeed at work, if you want the promotion, you should go to the seminar that they provided for you so that you can learn more stuff and simultaneously turn the whole shebang over to God and say, Jesus, I need you to take me where you want me in my career. Like, if you want your kids to listen to you, if you want your parents to listen to you, like, read some information about it and do it. But don't ever do any of that without saying, Jesus, if you don't do this, it's not going to happen. Because frankly, when the mission of God fails, it's because of my lack of faithfulness. It's usually because I'm trusting in like this, 
Well, this guy, you know, in Oakland, California, I'm making junk up now, has this like really big growing church. I'm going to read his stuff. What I'm trusting in is this guy who made it work in Oakland, California, or this parenting expert who wrote this article, or I'm talking about even like, I'm talking about everything. Like I, you know, read a book by Ernie Els on how to putt better. That's what I'm trusting in. Instead of bathing the whole thing in prayer. And now you're saying, okay, like God doesn't care about golf though. And I'm saying actually, yes, he does. Don't divide those things up. God very much cares about golf. He very much cares about your next shoe purchase. Don't ever be like, well, I, you know, I don't, God does Jesus stuff, Sunday morning stuff. You know, if I really need help, I might have my devotions at night. But this other stuff, I take care of myself. We all do that. We all do that because we are children of the enlightenment who've been taught. There's a place for God, more or less narrow. And then there's a place for your own decision-making and your human reason. And I'm saying that those are, it's a false either or, okay? When the mission of God fails, it frequently fails because we don't, we, we don't connect the spiritual and the physical. Here's the next way it fails in this text. By believing that the power is ours. Look in verse 28. Uh, so the disciples can't cast this demon out. Jesus does. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast it out? Well, first of all, it's the wrong question, right? Well, it's not the wrong question. The, the, the question has the answer embedded within it. Why couldn't we cast it out? Because none of you are able to cast out demons. There's not a single human being in the world who has the power to cast out demons. You understand that, right? Like none of us has the authority to do that. I, I, I don't even have the authority to make this a, a sermon that works in your heart. I don't even have the authority on my own to walk down the street and not get hit with a meteorite. All these things are not up to me. But I like to pretend that they are. I like to pretend that I'm in control. I like to pretend that I like, I've got this. I can do this. I can be a good pastor. I can be a good friend. I can be a good son to my parents. I can do this. No, I can't do it. I don't have the authority. And when I say, well, why can't I be a good parent? The answer is embedded in the question. It's because you are asking it, Aaron. You can't be a good parent because you're not a good parent. And the disciples have gotten to the place where they think, this is our power. We've got the power to do it. Now, it's not completely, they're not completely misled because do you remember back in Mark chapter six when Jesus sent them out on mission? We read about this a couple months ago. And he gave them authority, two by two, he gave them authority to cast out demons. The problem though is that that's Jesus' authority that he's given to them. And between Mark chapter six and Mark chapter nine, they've started to develop the notion that it's actually their authority. They're starting to believe it. Now Jesus has tried to wean them off of this. He's tried to make them see. Do you remember Mark chapter six with the story of the feeding of the 5,000? So all these people are gathered there and they're listening to Jesus teach and preach. And then they get hungry. And remember what Jesus says to the disciples? Give them something to eat. I mean, Jesus knows they don't have any food. But what he wants them to say is, we can't. You're crazy. We don't have any food to eat, which is what they say, which is the first step to Jesus accomplishing his mission of feeding them is that his workers, his people, his followers, his friends saying, we can't do that. What are, you, what are you asking of us? I don't do that though. Like, I know I'm supposed to be a good friend, but I don't hardly ever say like, God, I, don't, I can't be a good husband. I can't be a good friend. I can't be a good pastor. I can't be a good golfer. I hardly ever say that. Why? Because I think that I can be good at those things, which is why I'm not good at those things. And the first step to the mission failing is to say, well, we can do this. This is on us, right? I can take care of this. That's the first step to the mission failing. Now, we all struggle with this. I, I, I more than you, I guarantee it. Two signs in this text, two symptoms. I'll give you some like, this is, these are the canaries in the coal mine. 
If you see this start to happen, it could be a sign that you are trying to do the mission on your own outside of Jesus' help, that you lack faith in Jesus and you're trying to do the mission on your own. Canary in the coal mine. Here we go. Here's, here's the first one. Despair. Look at verse 22. Uh, the guy brings his kid to the disciples. The disciples can't uh, heal the kid. Jesus is talking to the guy. And verse 22, he's describing what's happened to him. It often This uh, demon often casts him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Do you see where the guy's at? The disciple brought his kid to Jesus to get healed because he knows Jesus heals. Jesus' followers couldn't do it though. And that led the guy to despair. The followers, we can't do, we want to do the mission. The disciples want to do it. They can't do it. And it leads to this guy's despair. The guy is starting to doubt if Jesus can do it. If you can do this. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. This is a shot in the dark. More on that in a minute. If you can, he's starting to get to the place where like he's without hope. And this is almost like not a confident, let's go to Jesus. He can heal my kid. And more like, can you do something here, God? Not God, but Jesus, right? That's where we get when we try to do it on our own. And if you are experiencing anything that smells like despair in your Christian life or the stage after despair, which is apathy, then it's possibly a sign that you've tried to do mission on your own and have been unsuccessful and now are either in despair about it or you've just given up. So there's, you know, there's sins that I struggle with in my life and you struggle with this sin, like God help me, it doesn't work. God help me, it doesn't work. God help me, I'm still struggling. And you're trying to do it and you're trying to do it and eventually you get to the point as a good Lutheran where I say, at least I'm forgiven. I'm just gonna quit. That moment of despair of like, I just can't do this, is a sign that I've been trying to do it on my own. And I realize it's a good sign. It's like that, it's, you know, you, you know it's, like the, uh, it's like the pain in your side that sends you to the doctor and he tells you, you got a hernia. It's a good sign. That despair is your body, your soul telling you, you can't do this. You're trying to do this and you can't do this. And your psyche is kicking back and saying, you have to stop. You're going to kill yourself trying to be a good parent or a good friend or a good pastor. Despair leads to that. We struggle against sin in our own power and continue to fail. We frequently have despair until we get to the point where we just quit trying. We just quit trying. If you've gotten to that point, it's time to get back to the second part of the sermon here in a minute. Despair is a symptom of, possibly a symptom of doing things on your own, believing the power is yours. Here's the second one. Look at verses 14. So they come down from the mountain to the disciples. They saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. So here's the scribes. The scribes are most normally like Pharisees, different idea of what Israel should look like, different idea about how to deal with the Rome problem, different idea about what holiness looks like, a completely different idea about who's the center of the whole thing. Jesus' disciples believe it's Jesus. The Pharisees, they have different ideas about what the Messiah is going to look like and what he's going to do. But they're arguing with each other. Jesus walks down and he sees his, his friends arguing with this group of people. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to Jesus and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? So the first thing Jesus has noticed, notices is this arguing. Now, okay, so try to recreate this scene in your mind. A little, bit of, a, little, a little of this is speculation, all right? So the father comes up to Jesus' disciples and he says, hey, my kid is sick, can you help him? And the disciples are like, yeah, we can do this. 
and they do whatever they're going to do to try and help the kid. And then it doesn't work. And the next minute, fighting. How did that happen? Here's my guess. The disciples weren't able to cast the demon out. And so their ideological opponents, the scribes, say, see, we knew you weren't working for God. And what did the disciples do? They started arguing back. We are so working for God. Back and forth. So why do you argue? Why do you argue? You know, we have lust. We don't want to, we want things. And we can't get things. And so we fight, James says. But why are they arguing? They're arguing because they're incompetent. They're arguing because they couldn't do what they knew they should do. And their only defense left is to double down and to fight back. Here's a symptom. If you are an arguer, if you find yourself arguing and fighting with unbelievers or with believers, it's quite possibly a symptom that you've tried to do things on your own and have been unsuccessful and all you have left is arguing. Look, nobody in the Bible comes to faith by arguing. Not one time in scripture does Jesus or one of his followers say, hey, you're wrong, and let me show you three, three ways from the book of Psalms that you're wrong. And then people argue back, and then they argue. And then people are like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. That second argument was solid. You know what? I think I'm going to be a Christian. It never happens in Scripture. How do people come to faith in Scripture? They come to faith because they have a, a personal encounter with Jesus. He touches them and heals them. Sometimes it's like crazy supernatural, like uh, St. Paul on the road to Damascus. St. Paul has been arguing against Christians. It's not one of the, it's not one of the apostles' arguments that wins St. Paul. It's this dramatic moment. If we find ourselves arguing, it's because we have abandoned the hope of a supernatural act of grace coming from God towards other people, and we are relying upon ourselves and our own strength. Guaranteed number one, number one way to fail in mission is to argue with people. No, you guys know this from your own personal experience. Nobody ever changes their mind because you've argued them into changing their mind. It never happens in Scripture. Don't do it. Do not argue with people. Now, am I saying you should never speak truth? Absolutely not. Let me offer you up an alternative to the arguing. Let me prove to you that Jesus is the Son of God. Let me offer, you up, to, let me offer up to you an alternative. I'm going to have to jump over to a different text to do this, okay? 1 Peter chapter 3 is what Peter says. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. That word defense is the exact same word we get apologetics from. Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks the reason for the hope that's in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. If you're talking to somebody about Jesus and you're not talking to them with an attitude of they are better than me and I am here to serve them, you are not talking gospel to them. You might be saying right words. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit can't use it. But you are not doing what Peter says. You're arguing. The scribes are not going to come to faith through arguing. I guarantee it. If you don't do it with gentleness, if you do it with the spirit of fighting, with a spirit of like, I can score one on you. I'm going to make this point really good. Or I'm going to like say this and then you're not going to be able to respond. If you do it with, that, with a spirit, not of gentleness, but of roughness, then you are not doing what Peter told you to do. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good 
If that should be God's will, then for doing evil. What does he mean there? The, this explaining, this apologizing, this making a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you will result in suffering for doing good. It's better to suffer for doing good. If you're having a conversation with someone and the goal is to make them suffer for not agreeing with you, then you're arguing and you're not speaking God's gospel to them. You're not speaking the truth in love. Maybe it's the truth, but it's not the truth in love. If you're not speaking to them at all and you're just being sort of gentle and kind, then you're not speaking the truth. What we're called to do is to be prepared to make a defense for the hope that's in you to anyone who asks. And even that, Peter, it's, it, the hint there is to anyone who asks, live a life that people can see that you have hope. And when they say, why do you have hope? And they ask you, then you give a reason with gentleness and with respect for the hope that's in you. But you're never like cold slamming somebody with the gospel. It's never a wrestling move. It's never like I learned logic in high school and now I'm going to use this to like show people how dumb they are for not believing in Jesus. Don't argue. Arguing is a symptom that you tried to do it on your own and it didn't work. It's from the text. All right. Now, what about the mission? That's all negative. Sorry about that. The mission does work though. I mean, the kid gets cured is the thing. I mean, that's the good news of the text, right? Is that Jesus wins in the end. How does this happen? First of all, faith, right? It's the faithless generation that doesn't heal him. The guy, his son is healed because he has faith. If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And then Jesus heals the kid. The mission works when God's people trust in Jesus. The mission doesn't work when God's people don't trust in Jesus. The mission does work when God's people do trust in Jesus. That's a fancy way of saying this. We don't do the mission. Jesus does the mission, and he lets us be a part of it. He lets us along for the ride, okay? Another way of saying it is this. Our problems are far worse than we supposed. Our problems are not problems that reading the five steps to church growth can actually solve. They're much deeper than that. My problems, I can't read a book on how to overcome the sin of greed or the sin of lust or the sin of lying and get over greed and lust and lying. The problem runs much deeper than that. The problem is far worse than I could have ever imagined. I need somebody else who has the power to come and fix me. And that's the good news because Jesus' power in this story is far greater than we ever imagined it. Jesus is able to cure people with demon possession and epilepsy. Jesus is able to make churches grow. Jesus is able to heal broken relationships between kids and parents, between husbands and wives, between friend and friend. Jesus is able to cure people of their diseases. Jesus is, able to heal. Jesus is able to raise people from the dead. Jesus can do all these things because his power is so immense. And when we pretend like we can do it on our own, what we're saying is, is that I can handle this problem. But the message of this story is that we can't handle this problem because it's far worse than we imagined. The good news is that Jesus' power to fix the problem is far greater than we imagined. And it looks like resurrection. Look, my marriage doesn't need tinkering with. My marriage needs a death and resurrection to be successful. My relationship as you, with you as friend and as pastor doesn't need, I don't need to read another book about, I should read, I said that wrong. I should be reading books about how to be a better pastor. But what I, it's not going to fix me. It's not going to make me a better pastor. Me, Aaron Miller, the, the pastor needs to die and be brought back to life. That's the problem I have. That's what happens in this text. This kid comes back. There's actually two, two, two ways that this comes out here. Uh, let me point out the first one to you. Verse 26, 
uh, after, uh, um, where am I at here? After crying out and convulsing him terribly, the demon came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took, so this, this is almost a parallel to the Jairus' daughter text. You remember that from a few, a few, few months ago? Do you remember when Jesus goes in, the, the, the synagogue ruler says, can you heal my daughter? She's dead. Everybody's like, oh, that girl is dead. And Jesus says, no, she's not. She's sleeping. Here, they all say he's dead. And I don't know if he's dead or not. It doesn't seem like he is. But Jesus reaches down and raises him up. But anyway, in, in verse 27, look at this. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. That's actually, so uh, that's a fine translation. It makes sense. It sounds normal. But actually, in the, in the Greek, there are two words here. The word behind lifted him up and the word behind arose are both words that are going to get regularly used for resurrection when you get later on in the story. They're both words for resurrection. It, literally, if I, if I wanted to translate this woodenly, I could translate it like this. But Jesus took him by the hand and resurrected him up, and he was resurrected. People say he's dead. Jesus grabs him by the hand. And just in case you missed it the first time, Mark says twice, Jesus resurrected him. The problem is death, and the solution is resurrection. And you and I can't fix any of that, right? Like, I might be able to shave some strokes off my golf game. You might be able to get the promotion. You might be able to get help with your seizures. But the problem is, is that we're all going to die. All of us. You and I are going to die. This church is going to die. Our kids are going to die. We need resurrection. That's what Jesus offers. Not more self-help, but resurrection. Here's another warning in this, though, too. The mission, so pay attention to this. What does this mean in the story? We kind of forget this because we, we know it ends good. The mission will frequently look like death. It will frequently look like death. So, so put yourself, you don't know how the story ends. Put yourself back in the moment. Okay, G Jesus' disciples are arguing with the Pharisees. This poor dad is like his kid's having a seizure. He's talking to Jesus. Jesus says, I can heal him. And the dad's probably like, okay, please, let this work, God. And Jesus heals him, says the words, demon, go away from him. And the kid, bam, falls down dead. And what's everybody thinking? Well, what would you be thinking? You just killed that guy, Jesus. Like, I mean, he was having a seizure, but he was alive. And now look, you killed him. Why is this important? Because when you are on mission, it will frequently look like death. And you're going to be like, this is not working. Lots of people have this experience. Like, you know, they have problems in their life and they're like, okay, God, like I'm sick. I'm going to come pray to you. God, please help me. And then they get the news. They're actually even more sick than they thought they were. Or like, like God, my child has turned away from you. Will you save my kid? And then they find out their kid has done something so horribly stupid, some irreversible damage. We, this happens all the time. And we're like, where are you at? Like, God, I prayed to you and you didn't help me. So many people have this story like, I needed God's help and I prayed to him and he didn't help me. Actually, what we think is him not helping is frequently him helping, but in a way that we didn't expect. Because he doesn't help by making my golf game better. He doesn't help by getting rid of my epilepsy, maybe. 
I mean, maybe my golf game will get better. Maybe my epilepsy will go away. Maybe my relationship with my wife will get repaired. Maybe, my, maybe I'll become closer to my parents. Maybe I'll actually become a better pastor. Maybe, maybe not, but that's not, he's not guaranteed to work that way. He very frequently works through death. Look, when you, when you throw yourself out there, when you say, okay, Jesus, I'm done trying this. Like, you are in charge here. You might lose your job. That's a scary place to be. Like, God, you do whatever you can to be in control of my life. That's a scary prayer to pray. But frequently the mission works like that, where you throw yourself out there and it just looks and smells like failure. And people look at you and your family and they're like, God, you killed that guy. People look at St. James and they're like, Jesus, you killed that church. What's up with that? But if you just hold on, and I'm not saying it's going to be a matter of minutes. It might be a matter of months or years or generations or centuries. He is working out his kingdom power to make all things right and all things new. And the way he does that is through the death of his own son. And so we shouldn't be surprised if the way he does it in our life is through the death of our dreams or the death of our academic aspirations or the death of like our relational goals. I thought that girl was going to be into me and then God, you took her away. The death of ourselves, the death of our health. That's how God works and to just jump in and go along for the ride because you know he's about to work resurrection out in your life at some point. That's what it means to have faith. That's when the kingdom works. I mean, you see what I'm saying here? It's not me. Like God could kill me right now on this platform. I hope he doesn't. But God could kill me right now on this platform and it would be his will and he would work it out for his glory. And I pray to God that he would save some people because he killed me on this platform. That's not anything I'm praying for, right? But when you jump along for the missional ride, sometimes it looks like, not always, but sometimes it looks like that. It might not be me, me like all that dramatic, but it will be this. There are goals that I have for this church that are going to be unmet. You know why? Because my goals for this church have to die for the mission to work. I'm not in charge here. And if I was, it'd be a screwed up place. The mission frequently looks like death. It's encouragement, hopefully. Last thing, what does our role do in this? We'll do this quick. If, Jesus, if, if, if we don't do the mission, but Jesus does the mission, what's our role in this? And the answer all throughout the sermon and the text is faith, right? If you, can, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. All things are possible for one who believes. You have to have faith. If you have faith in Jesus, the mission will be successful. What is faith here? I'm trying to think of a good way to do this. I did it differently in the first one. Let me do it this way. The answer in the text is faith. Some of you struggle with this because some of you are like, I don't know if I've got enough good faith in Jesus. And what I don't want you to do is to think of faith as I have to build up this faith inside of me and then Jesus will work. And my faith levels are low. I don't know if I believe. And so I don't know if he's going to work. Two two things here. First of all, faith, the faith that saves very clearly in this text is faith that acknowledges that it's unbelief. It's faith that acknowledges that it doesn't have enough faith. It's belief that acknowledges it's unbelief. That's what the, 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 the guy says, right? Jesus says, all things are possible for one who believes. The guy says, I believe, but I don't believe. And Jesus says, okay, that's good. You're saved, right? Because faith is not something that you have. Faith is something that you're oriented towards. And even if you're like, I'm not even sure if this Jesus guy can do any of this stuff, but you go to him 
He will save you because that's what faith is. Faith is not something that you have inside of yourself. Faith is a disposition towards, like, what do you do? Like, where do you go when you need help? If that's Jesus, that's saving faith. So my favorite example of this is, I've done this before in here. You're falling off a cliff. It's a hundred foot cliff. You're going to die if you hit the bottom, right? You look over, as you're falling, you look over, probably look down because you can't process this fast enough. You look down and you see a bush on the side of the cliff coming up towards you. And you look at that bush and you see that the roots are like firmly embedded in the rock and that that bush is sturdy. And you say to yourself, if I grab onto that bush, I will save my life. And then you don't do it. You will uh, splat at the bottom. You will die, right? Because you knew in your mind, you had faith inside yourself that that bush could really, really do that but you actually didn't grab onto it. You're going to die. Okay, let's rewind because I don't like you being dead. You jump at the top of the cliff and you're falling off and you look down and you see the bush. But this time you can't tell if that bush is sturdy at all. It might just be like a little thing of tumbleweed kind of nestling up against a crevice in the rock. Maybe it's not connected to the cliff at all. You don't know. And you're thinking, I don't, that bush probably won't hold my weight even. I don't even know. But you reach out and you grab it you will be saved. Even if, your mind, even if in your mind you're like, I don't know if that would work or not. If you reach out and grab it, you'll be saved. That's where this guy's at. He doesn't know if Jesus can help him or not, but he goes to Jesus and says, if you can, can you do something for me? That's faith. That's saving faith here. But basically what I'm saying is this. Well, let me do it this way. Last verse. Look at the last verse. Uh, scatterbrain. That's the best word to describe me. Like you need, I need to read a book on like how not to be a scatterbrain pastor. If anybody has a good one in mind. Oh, so the disciples come to Jesus. The kid is healed. The disciples come to Jesus and they say to him, why couldn't we cast it out? And Jesus says, this kind can't be driven out by anything but prayer. Okay, so he said earlier that this is by faith. All things are possible for those who believe. And now he's saying it's by prayer. So which is it, Jesus? Like, does does the mission happen? Are we saved by faith or by prayer? And the answer is, is that they're the same thing. In fact, actually, this is really cool. Hold on to this. Matthew chapter 17 is the parallel text. And I'm sure, you know, the disciples meet with Jesus afterwards and say, why couldn't we cast out the demon? And I'm sure this this is a sort of long conversation that follows what Jesus is talking about, what happened. But the thing that that Mark's source, probably St. Peter, the thing that Mark's source remembers is that Jesus said, this kind only comes out by prayer. But the thing that Matthew remembers from that conversation is this. Let me read it from Matthew. This is Matthew 17, 19. The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we cast out the demon? Here's what Jesus said. He said to them, because of your little faith. Did you catch that? Which one was it, Jesus? Could they, cast, could they not cast it out because of their little faith or because they didn't pray? And the answer is, that's the same thing. Matthew and Peter are just remembering it differently, but they're remembering the exact same thing. What kind of faith do you need for Jesus to be on mission in your life? The kind of faith that just prays. You don't have to really, really believe it. You don't have to be assured 100% deep down in your heart. You just have to be willing to say, like, God, will you help me? So this kind only comes out by prayer. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer, he says. Okay, so whose prayer? Whose prayer did that? It wasn't the disciples. They're off arguing with their ideological opposites. It's the poor dad who just said, hey, can you help me? I don't know if you can, but can you help me? And Jesus says, if you believe, and he says, I don't even know if I believe. Can you help me with that too? That's the faith that saves. Why? 
Because Jesus isn't here to be like, I died on the cross to save you once you figure things out. I died on the cross to save you once you really get to the point where you really believe in me. Uh, you're at 75%. I want 100% commitment. I'll take 95%. That's not what Jesus is here. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead to kill us and raise us from the dead. And the only thing you have to do to access that, I swear, I swear to God right now, the only thing you have to do to access that is to say to him, Jesus, I'm not even sure if anything this guy is saying is true, but can you help me? If you can say that, you're in on the mission and it will be successful. It might look like death, but at the end of the day, it will be resurrection. Stand up with me and let's pray. Then we'll have communion together. Let's pray. God, thank you as always for loving us and for being good to us. Thank you for not leaving us hanging. Thank you for not offering us a salvation and then giving us uh, an algebra problem to figure out or offering us salvation and then saying, well, here's the emotional state you need to be at before you can access it. Thank you for giving us your son, Jesus. Thank you for working in our heart to just reach out and grab onto the branch. God, that's your work. Like we're so self-willed. As we see from the story here today and from, from the biography of Aaron Miller, anytime you do things in your own power, it just gets screwed up. God, forgive me. Thank you so much for making our relationship with you dependent upon your death and resurrection. Lord, in your mercy. Father, be with all of us who are struggling today with physical stuff. Be with all of us who are struggling with epilepsy and with cancer and with loneliness and with unmet expectations in relationships and with academic goals that are unmet and the pressures that our parents put on us to meet those academic goals and career goals that are unmet, relationships that are frayed and we don't even know why, but we feel the wall there. Like, God, will you fix all these things? Can you... Please make these things new, Father. We're asking this in the name of your son, Jesus, and we know you never deny a request made in his name. Make us new. We need you so much. Lord, in your mercy. Be with our country, Father. Be with us as we, all of us, are trying to do things our own way. Help us not to rely on ourselves, but help us to regularly ask you and rely on you for your death and resurrection power to heal us as a people. Father, be with our elected officials and our bureaucrats. Uh, save us. Save them. Convert us all to faith in your son, Jesus Christ. Help all of us, from president to congresspeople to senators to county executives to mayors. Help us all to bow the knee at the feet of your son, Jesus, and confess that he's the Lord and that we are not, that he's the true president and we are not that he's the true governor of governors and we are not. God, rescue us and keep us safe. We need your help in all different areas. Our, our economy too, Father. We want our economy to bring glory to you. Will you allow us as a country, but, but it's, uh, uh, us as a church and us as individuals, but us as a country, to see money as a tool to serve others, to see money as a gift of you, to be self-sacrificial, to build up the lives of other people. God, with Sex and power, will you help us to see these things as, as gifts of you, to serve each other, to buy into relationships? I guess what I'm praying for, Father, is that you would transform our world, transform Glen Carbon. May this be a place where honesty is the name of the game, where self-sacrifice is the name of the game, 
where we care more about our neighbors than about ourselves, where we care more about justice and truth than we care about getting ahead. Father, make this a reality. Let St. James be a part of this. We want to be a part of your kingdom. We want to see it grow. We want to be a part of the tool that you use. We can't do it on our own. We need your son Jesus to be on his mission. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we can only pray these things because you are the great God, because you are the real God. You're the God of the transfiguration. You're the God of epilepsy. You're the God of the broken relationship. You're the God who is everywhere at all times, working out your will in every way. And for whatever reason, your love, your infinite love, your love which we could never even think about plumbing the depths of, you've called us your own children and invited us here into your throne room. And so we pray this only in the name of our brother Jesus. Amen. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. This is in your bulletin. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the father. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated. Savior's love to me, love to 
Please stand. And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Make sure that you are constantly building relationships. Find somebody that you normally wouldn't talk to and really kind of buy in and work on that relationship today. In Jesus' name, that's how we experience the power of the Holy Spirit. Go in peace.